Well, good morning. My name is Mike, and I'm one of the priests here at Truro, and it is a privilege to be with you this morning. I'd like to invite you now, if you have a Bible, to open to Psalm 7. If you don't have a Bible, good news, there are Bibles in your pews. I think Psalm 7, at least the Bible over there in that stall is page 450. So somebody tell me it's 450, correct, in the pews? All right, 450. So go ahead, open it up to Psalm 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. While you're flipping there, I'd like to start by asking a question. Have you ever found yourself in a situation, perhaps an interpersonal situation, where things aren't going the way that they were supposed to? Yes? Okay. Like, this isn't how it's supposed to go, and it seems like maybe God is nowhere to be seen. Have you ever experienced that before? Have you ever been hurt by someone? Betrayed by someone? This is the situation that David finds himself in when he writes and prays Psalm 7. We see it right here in the heading. Psalm of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Now, we don't actually know who Cush was. Doesn't tell us. He's probably an ally of Saul. Saul was the king that David would replace. But we don't really know much more than that. What we do know by looking at the content of the psalm is that Cush had said some stuff about David. It seems like slander of some kind, and it's left David both hurt and indignant. Because of that, Psalm 7 has been classified by scholars as a personal lament. You could also perhaps say it's an imprecatory psalm. Jamie talked about those a couple weeks ago. Uh, one Old Testament scholar calls imprecatory psalms the cursing psalms, <laughs> where the psalmist is like, God, can you take care of that guy, my enemy? It could be considered an imprecatory psalm as well. Regardless, it's a psalm where the psalmist cries out to God in pain and anguish in response to suffering or hardship or grief or injustice. In short, we know that David is hurting and angry, that he's been wronged when he prays this psalm. We know it's because of this guy, Cush. Okay, so why should Psalm 7 matter for us? Let's start there. Now, we know that the psalms are the prayer book of God's people. They have been for thousands of years. In fact, the psalms are Jesus' prayer book. These are, the psalm, these are the prayers that Jesus prayed. We also know that the Psalms are the divinely inspired word of God. And so the Psalms are God teaching us how to talk to him. The Psalms are how God wants us to talk to him. So here we are with a prayer David prayed when some guy named Cush was bad-mouthing him. Now, I've never personally been bad-mouthed by Cush, but believe it or not, I have been hurt by people. I've had moments in my life where something has gone wrong, both big and small, and I'm guessing by the murmur just a moment ago when I asked my opening question that you have too. I've been in a situation where something's gone wrong or hasn't turned out like you thought it should or where you've been deeply hurt by somebody, and that's where Psalm 7 is going to help us. Psalm 7 uh, is going to teach us how to pray. Now, we can't truly go deeply line by line for 17 verses, 
or our kids' ministry downstairs would kill me. <laughs> so instead, we're going to be eminently practical this morning, if that's okay. We'll spend some time looking at how David prays here, taking a look at sort of the four primary movements of the psalm. My hope is it's going to teach us how to pray when we've been wronged by someone or when we're in conflict with another person or when something in our life has gone wrong. So let's take a look at it together. Let's look right here. Starting at verse 1. First, what we've got here is orientation. David prays, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers. Deliver me, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. David starts by orienting himself towards God. Oh, Lord, my God. This is the first time, by the way, in the Psalms where the whole name for God is used. He prays, I take refuge in you. Save me. Deliver me. David starts by looking at God. He, he talks to him. It's personal. It's relational. My Lord and God. You could call it faith. It's an intentional turning towards God, and it's where David starts. It's where we all should always start, for that matter. It doesn't matter what you're going through, it's good to start with God. And so David first lifts up his eyes away from his problem and towards God. He orients himself to God, which provides a bit of perspective. And then he orients God to his challenge. Second half of verse 1 and verse 2. Save me from my pursuers. Deliver me, lest they tear me apart. David names his fear and his anxiety. He doesn't bury it. He doesn't try to deal with it all on his own. He doesn't shy away from it. But he says it out loud to God. He, he names it. He orients himself to God. And then he orients God to his problem. Now, you might be saying, Mike, doesn't God already know his problem? Of course. Of course God knows his problem. Right? But sometimes we just got to say the thing out loud. That's what David does here. Orients himself to God, and then he says the thing out loud. Caught him in trouble. You got to intervene here. First orientation. Part two. This is verses three to nine. The psalmist makes his case. Second, David makes his case. He does this in two parts. First, with a claim of innocence. And second, with a cry for vindication. Look at me, verses 3 to 5. O oh Lord my God, if I've done this, if there is any wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Selah. <laughs> Can you feel David's indignance a little bit here? His, come on, God, what's happening to me? What have I done to deserve this? I haven't done anything wrong here. Now, if I'm honest, it feels just a little bit dramatic. If I've done anything wrong here at all, God, then trample me to the dust seems a bit much. Certainly, we're talking a high emotion. Maybe even a bit of an attitude. Makes me think of when I was a kid. Mom, I didn't do it. I didn't do anything. It wasn't me. It was him. 
That's what it reminds me of. Now, I'm not in a position to make any sort of judgment call as to David's innocence here, okay? But here's what I found myself thinking as I've wrestled with this psalm over the last few weeks. God, God knows if we're innocent or not. He does. He knows if what's happening to us in any given moment when we don't feel like something isn't going as planned or when we've been wrongly accused or hurt, God knows if that's deserved or not. God knows that more often than not, we're not really innocent, <laughs> at least not entirely. Maybe David was. Um, I know for me, I've usually played some part in the situation. And yet, this is how God wants us to talk to him. He wants us to bring all of our indignance to him, our, our protestations regarding a situation, all of our drama, all of our high emotion, all of our attitude. He wants it all. He wants us to bring it all to him. Now, I'm not going to lie. If my kids were to talk to me like this, they'd never talk to me like when my kids talk to me like this, it drives me a little bit nuts. I want to say, oh, just calm down for a second. Or don't be so dramatic. Or let's stop and examine the situation here. Or sometimes don't talk to me like that. It's disrespectful. I am no perfectly patient and understanding father. But not so with God. God can handle all of our protestations, our cries of, it's not fair. And I don't deserve this. In fact, if the Psalms are God teaching us how to talk to him, then it seems he wants us to talk to him this way sometimes. He wants us to bring him our drama and our emotions. He wants us to, to come to him with our attitude and our, it shouldn't be this way and I don't deserve this. And so David does. He proclaims his innocence to God loud and clear. But he doesn't stop there. He starts with, I didn't do this. I'm innocent. And then he moves to, so why don't you do something about it? Look with me here, starting at verse 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me, for you have appointed a judgment. David is ticked. <laughs> Can you hear it? Lord, do something. Get up. Aren't you angry about this? I'm angry about this. You should be angry about this. Do something for me right now, God. Continues verse 7. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you and overturn it on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. May you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and the hearts, O oh, righteous God. Do you hear it? Can you feel it? We've still got the I'm innocent. 
But we've also got to do something, God. Do something about the wicked. I've been wrong. This guy has done this. Can you do something about it here already? Can you do something about my situation? Intervene. I'm waiting. I'm here. Where are you? Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about prayer or worship, there are a couple postures that come to mind. All right? One of them's this. One of them's this. Right? Uh, one of them is this. One of them is this. This doesn't feel like any of those, does it? It's not the posture I imagine David to be in in this moment. I think it's a little bit closer to this. My boys, I've got three boys. Many of you know this. We, there's a lot of soccer in our house. They all play soccer all the time. I mean, hours and hours and hours of soccer. And we spend a lot of time in our house watching soccer too. And I can remember, it was after the last World Cup, two years ago, I, I remember the behavior, especially of my younger sons, changed a bit on the pitch, okay? Now, we don't see this, the Women's World Cup just started. Is anyone here watching the Women's World Cup? I watched the U.S. women win on Friday night. It was late, but I stayed up for it. 3-0, let's go USA. You don't see this so much in women's soccer. But in men's soccer, any time that maybe it's possible there could have been a foul, what do you see? Come on! And I noticed this in the behavior of my younger boys after the last World Cup. All right? We watched a lot of the World Cup, and I noticed. Now, they're not diving. They're not faking fouls. But when they're fouled, I've noticed they start getting up, and they look to the ref like this. <laughs> right? I started to see this in my boys. They get fouled. They go down. They go, come on, ref. And there's a little part of me that's a little proud. <laughs> and then there's a little part of me that's like, you shouldn't do that. That's disrespectful. You shouldn't talk to the ref that way. Right? Most of us probably feel that second. Like, it's not really the appropriate way to talk to authority like this. Come on. And yet, I think that's what David's doing here. Come on, ref. I've been fouled. Do something about it. Blow your whistle for crying out loud. Referees tend not to respond super positively to that, especially when it's an eight-year-old. <laughs> but I think God wants our protestations in a way that a referee doesn't. At least that's what Psalm 7 seems to be telling me, right? If this is God teaching us to pray then he wants our, come on, blow your whistle. Even a, come on, God, where are you? Look, I think part of what this psalm wants to teach us about how to pray is that there are times when God wants this and this. which is certainly much better than what we normally do, which is this, or this, or this. 
First, we orient ourselves to God. We orient God to the problem. Second, we make our case with all of the feelings, the frustrations, the come on, do something, that I didn't do this. Next, we see in the next part that the psalmist testifies. At this point in the prayer, David turns from an indignant protestation, although that's still going to be in there, we're going to see it, from making his case to an expression of trust. Look at me here, verse 10. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. You catch that? God feels indignation, just like you or I do. It seems to me like what David's doing here is he's reminding himself as he talks to God that God cares, that he sees, that he isn't indifferent, that he is just, he will do something. He's praying something along the lines of, God, I trust you. You do hear me and you will do something. Look, let me share an example of this. We're in the process of planting a new church. And it's both totally exciting and completely terrifying all at once. Here's, and let me tell you, it is bringing a whole lot of my own insecurities and fears to the surface. Here's what my prayer life has looked a whole lot like lately. God, where are you? How is this going to work? I need you to come through on this and I needed it yesterday. Come on. You called me to do this, didn't you? Don't let me down now. Where are you? And what am I even supposed to do here? And how on earth am I going to make my mortgage? That's part A. Do something, God. Part B is usually something like this. Okay. I know you've called me to this. I believe that you're good. And you're faithful. The truth is, you haven't let us down yet. You've always provided everything that we need and more, even if it hasn't always been what I wanted or expected. And even though I'm not sure exactly how this is going to work, I trust you. That's what I think the psalmist is doing here. He's reminding himself of God's character and faithfulness with an okay I trust you. Friend, Psalm 7 shows us that God wants both. He wants our protestations and our frustration and our hurt. And he wants our declarations of trust. He wants our drama and our faith. In In fact, perhaps it's how we ought to talk to him. That's the corner I think David's turned here. I don't know how this is going to work. Turn out, but I trust you. Interestingly enough, though, look at this with me. He doesn't exactly stay there. (laughs) Verse 12, if a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He's bent his bow and he's bent and readied his bow. He's prepared for him his deadly weapons, making arrows, fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull, his violence descends. I wonder what David is feeling as he prays these verses. 
Because it seems we're back to a bit of the dramatic, doesn't it? Man, he goes from you are my shield to he's making a pit and he's going to bury himself in it. And he's doing it all at once. He may have turned a corner to faith, but that doesn't mean that he's not still indignant, that he's not still hurting, that he doesn't still want God to do something. He doesn't suddenly have it all figured out, right? Here's what I found myself thinking. I think David's still mad. It's not like he just prayed one verse and suddenly it's better. He's still hurt. And in this prayer, this is what he's doing. He's, he's reminding himself that God does care, but he's also reminding himself that God will do something, that God does care about justice, that he's not indifferent to the ways he's been wronged. And so he lets rip a little bit more. You know what? God can handle it. God can handle it. He's plenty big enough to handle it. In fact, he's the only one who's big enough to handle our hurt and our pain and our fear and our it's not fairs. Us in our human bit, we're like, just cut it out, just stop talking. God's not like that. He said, I can handle it. Keep coming. Let her rip. The truth of the matter is, when we don't bring it to God, all of it, and bring it to him again, and again, what ends up happening is it ends up coming out sideways. It ends up coming out sideways. And friends, this is why imprecatory psalms and psalms of lament are so important. Because they teach us that it's not all sunshine and roses. That our prayer life doesn't always have to be happy and full of faith. It shows us that God can handle our pain and sorrow and indignant indignance and our hurt and our misunderstanding that he wants us to bring it to him. In fact, I think that maybe that's actually what true faith even looks like. Trusting that God's the one who's able and willing to handle it. And friends, he wants to handle it. He wants our drama. You're not too much for him. Your drama is not too much for him. Your pain and your hurt, it's not too much for him. That brings us to verse 17. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I'll sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. David ends by reorienting himself back to God and back to worship. He's let it all out. He's able to find some peace and respite. That's not always true in the Psalms. They don't always end this way. It's not always true for us either, is it? There's no promise that when we pray, God will make everything feel better for us. There certainly isn't any promise that he'll solve our problems the way that we want them to be solved or on the timeline we want them to be solved. But when we do let God have it a bit, the truth is it does reorient our stuff. It places our hurt in God's story rather than our own. So what does Psalm 7 teach us about how to pray? 
when we're hurt, or we've been hurt, or we don't understand what God is doing, or we felt betrayed or uncertain. It shows us first to orient ourselves towards God and then to orient God to the problem. It encourages us to make our case, to claim our innocence, to protest, right? To ask God to do something already. Psalm 7 teaches us to, to testify, to remember that God has, in fact, been faithful to us in the past, even as it encourages us to remember that God does see and care. He's not indifferent to it, and he is just. And then it encourages us to reorient ourselves back to him, to worship and pray. Now, here's where I think I want to end. God is not indifferent to our fears or our betrayals or our feelings of this isn't how it's supposed to go. He's not some impersonal customer service rep in God knows where that we ought to try to get a hold of when we've got a problem. He's a personal God. And the truth is that Jesus stepped into our problems. He stepped into our messes. He stepped into our hurt. And he didn't just step into it, he lived it. He lived the mess and the betrayal and the hurt. And then he died for it. Jesus knows what it's like to pray these prayers. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be hurt by others. It's not indifferent. He prayed these prayers and they were real for him. And even now the Bible tells us that Jesus is interceding for us the one who knows and understands, who's lived it and died for it, that Jesus, even now, is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. And he's doing it scars and all. When Jesus rose from the dead, his scars didn't magically disappear. He rose with scars, scars of betrayal. Those scars are still in his hands as he intercedes for us, even now. All of our stuff and our junk. He's saying, I can take it. Bring it to me. Let it out. Let her rip. I know what it's like. Let's pray. I invite you, actually, let's stand. Let's stand and pray. Gracious God, thank you that you are not indifferent to our stuff, but that you invite us to bring it to you, to trust you with it. And I pray, come Holy Spirit, would you help us to pray like this? Would you help us to bring you our stuff, our pain, our betrayals, our indignation? Remind us that you're not some referee who's going to wag your finger or say, pipe down. But instead you say, go ahead. Hmm. I can handle it. 
Would you make us? Oh, would you form in us that sort of prayer life? We pray these things through Jesus Christ who we trust is at your right hand even now interceding for us.